Hello and welcome to Marcus's Legal Snippets. My name is Marcus O'Leary and I'm an intellectual property information technology lawyer. Each month I will be providing you with interesting snippets of law and information from an English law perspective which you may find useful in your business. You can also read the text of these casts on my website at www.marcusoleary.com. This fourth legal snippet, made in March 2009, is all about liquidated damages clauses, which are sometimes called penalty clauses. In many commercial contracts, for example in software development contracts, it is quite difficult to predict what damages would be recoverable by the customer if the developer breached the contract. However, the parties can inject a degree of certainty by providing for a fixed sum or series of graduated sums to be paid on breach, quite commonly on the failure to achieve a milestone in accordance with the timetable. These clauses are called liquidated damages clauses, the word liquidated referring to the fact that the amount of damages is agreed and fixed by the parties. Damages which are not ascertained in this way are called unliquidated damages and are assessed by the court. Although there is a certain antipathy towards these clauses, they can actually be quite useful. For a start, they can keep a contract alive when it would otherwise fail. For example, stipulations as to time in contracts can be of the essence, so if a developer misses a crucial milestone, the customer could terminate the contract and sue for unliquidated damages. But with a liquidated damages clause, as long as the damages for breach are paid, the contract can go on. They are also quite useful in that they make recovery of damages easier, avoiding the problems of proving actual loss and avoiding arguments as to the remoteness of certain types of consequential or indirect losses. Not only that, but the fact that they are accepted by both parties indicates the intention of those parties to be bound by the contract, despite possible hiccups along the way. If a customer wishes to enforce a genuine liquidated damages clause, he merely has to show a breach of contract falling within the scope of the clause. And this is whether or not there has been any actual loss and regardless of the extent of any loss. The question of whether a liquidated damages clause is intended to be a mutually binding limitation on the amount of damages payable is one of construction of the contract. In the field of building and engineering contracts, liquidated damages clauses frequently operate as limitations of liability. One case held that where pounds nil was inserted as the amount of liquidated damages, then general damages, that is to say unliquidated damages, for breach of contract were not recoverable in the alternative. On the other hand, in an Australian case, where a construction contract provided that the rate of liquidated damages was not applicable, the arbitrator held that the claimant was entitled to recover damages at large, the parties having failed to conclude any clear agreement as to liquidated damages. The court upheld this decision. Common sense, really. In fact, if the clause fails, then the limit specified in the failed clause can operate as a ceiling on the amount of damages which can be claimed, although in the case of a penalty, the ceiling would probably not be reached as the penalty is likely to be higher than the loss would be. There's more on penalties to come. So what happens if there is a breach and liquidated damages become payable? Many contracts specify that liquidated damages can be deducted from other sums due, 
for example, from interim payments that the customer is due to make to the developer. There may also be a provision which states that liquidated damages can be recovered as if they were a debt due by the developer. These are all good drafting techniques and make it much more likely that the customer will be able to recover the sums due from the developer. On the other hand, if you're the developer, you want to try to prevent the inclusion of the above provisions and look for defences against a claim for liquidated damages. A viable defence where there is no provision in the contract to make an allowance or give a time extension to the developer, would be that the customer prevented the developer from completing his obligations under the contract, either because the customer breached the contract himself, or because the customer otherwise prevented the developer from completing his obligations. For example, the customer may have failed to provide the developer with vital information crucial to the development process, so that it was impossible for the developer to achieve the milestone. Also, it would be worth examining whether or not the customer fulfilled all relevant procedural requirements in the contract, such as notice periods and provisions requiring the liquidated damages to be assessed and deducted within certain time periods. If he didn't, the developer could avoid having to pay the damages. Sometimes, liquidated damages clauses are referred to as penalty clauses, presumably because these fixed sums feel like penalties to the person who has them imposed upon him. In actual fact, there is a crucial difference between liquidated damages clauses and penalty clauses. Genuine liquidated damages clauses are enforceable at law, whereas penalty clauses are not. The rules which determine whether a clause is a genuine liquidated damages clause or a penalty apply irrespective of the type of contract in question. The essential point is that if the specified sum represents a genuine attempt to estimate the probable loss that would occur on breach, the clause is enforceable. If, however, the sum is not a genuine pre-estimate of such loss, but an attempt to pressurise the party into performing in accordance with the contract, then it is not. If the loss is difficult to quantify, the customer should put in a figure which is his best guess and keep a record of the calculations which he undertook to establish the probable loss. As long as this figure is not massively greater than the greatest loss which he is likely to suffer, the clause should be enforceable. Whether a clause is a penalty or not is a question of construction relevant to the facts of each case judged at the time of making the contract, and the leading case of Dunlop Pneumatic Tire Co Limited against New Garage and Motor Co Limited in 1915 established the test to distinguish penalties from liquidated damages. Firstly, a clause will be construed as a penalty if the sum specified is extravagant and unconscionable in comparison with the greatest loss that could possibly be proved as a result of the breach. Secondly, a clause is likely to be construed as a penalty if the breach of contract consists only in not paying a sum of money and the sum stipulated as liquidated damages is greater than the sum which ought to have been paid. Thirdly, there is a presumption, but only that, that a clause is a penalty if a single lump sum is stated to be the compensation to apply to different breaches of contract, some of which are serious and some of which are not. Lastly, it is not a bar to the operation of a liquidated damages clause that precise pre-estimation is impossible. Now one often thinks that liquidated damages clauses are confined to commercial agreements, but in an employment case last year, 
an employer brought a claim for liquidated damages for breach of contract against a person who changed his mind after accepting an offer of employment. The claim was based on a clause in the contract, called a no-show clause, which required him to pay a specified amount if he did not start work. The High Court held that this was a liquidated damages clause rather than a penalty and that he was therefore liable to pay the amounts due under the clause. Anyway, I hope you found this fourth legal snippet interesting. Thank you.